Tonight we gather to contemplate the most tragic event in human history. God became man and died. The eternal, all-powerful Lord of everything hung limp on the cross. The only good person, yes, the perfect human being, was sentenced in an unjust trial, and he was killed by sinful man. The obedient son who never once disobeyed his father was sent to be killed by his own holy father in heaven. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, life himself, suffered the most tragic beating and physical pain and eventually died. This event is not good. This event is awful, it's tragic, it's horrible. And this event, it shakes the foundation of the entire universe. There is nothing that could be worse than God dying. The, the worst things we can think of, you think of genocide, you think of pandemics. Those things are awful, those things are horrible, and this event is worse. This event is far worse, and there could be nothing worse, and yet, there never has to be. This event is the once-and-done unique event in the history of the universe that changes the relationship between God and mankind. There is no denying the fact that God and the world are at odds. They sinned, and human beings are against God. And at this point in the story, we need something to change or else there'll never be reconciliation. And we can't have something merely human, right? No amount of human suffering could make the relationship between us and God any better. And so we need this. We need this, and we are saved by it. You see, the chains that Jesus Christ put on himself and took on himself are the things that set us free. The last breath of Jesus on the cross is the breath of life into this world. The reason why tonight is Good Friday, it's not because the event which we remember was good. Good Friday is only good because God went through this event in order to reconcile us to Jesus. That's why it's so good. The result of Jesus' death, it's life for us. And so I hope that you realize the cross, it's not a small thing, it's not a good thing, it's not a human thing. And yet we have the biggest and best and most holy God. He's the good planner who built the kingdom through all of this tragedy. Right? We need him and we have him. He will go to the ultimate end to retrieve his people and to reconcile us to himself. He's the one that can't be silenced or killed, embarrassed or defeated. Jesus reigns supreme over this world and he conquers on this Good Friday. He won for us what we could never have achieved and what we can now never lose. Let us pray. Father in heaven, your plan is unstoppable and your mercy never runs dry. Breathe life into our hard hearts this night. Speak to us through your word as we humbly seek you. Amen. Well, the passage to which I would like to call your attention tonight can be found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll be reading verses 14 through 21, and we'll have it on the screen here for you guys to follow along. 
2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 through 21. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled himself through Jesus Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's a powerful passage. And it's got some meaty verses in there, so I want to take some time, slow it down, go verse by verse, and really contemplate the cross tonight with you guys. In verse 14, Paul starts off by saying that Christ's love compels us. And if I had to think of somebody who was more compelled than Paul, I would be at a loss. This man, although he was once motivated by hatred of Christians, when God changed his life, he went on the most amazing missions trips ever. <laughs> he had three missions trips that were years long, right? He went to mostly Gentile regions, and they may never have even heard the word of God, right? Most of the places we might go today, they have some sort of local church we can rely on. This guy was all on his own, but God had him. But he was so compelled, right, by the love of Christ, he would endure beatings and jailings for preaching the word of Christ. Thirteen of the epistles in the Bible are written by Paul, which is a substantial amount of the New Testament, and he would not stop evangelizing until they killed him. He wouldn't stop until they killed him. It would be tough to find a person who was more compelled than Paul. And the word compelled here, it can be translated as pressed hard. So it's like Paul was pressed hard by the love of Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross. And he was pressed hard to go and do great missions works, to do great ministry among the people. And we too should be compelled in this way, right? We should look at Christ's love for us on the cross and be so compelled that we have a God who actively pursues us. We're not sitting around waiting for God. He's not up in this high tower looking down at us and saying, you do this, you do that. He gets into the mess with us, and he loves us perfectly. This kind of love is so powerful that it can compel us through any sort of trial. And we see that with Paul, right? And honestly, through all of the apostles. God's love was enough to compel the apostles to share the gospel even in the face of certain death, which is incredible. Well, Paul goes on that Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore, all died. This is a very crazy verse because the first half of it seems so natural for us. I think in the church we talk about this all the time, oh, one died for all, Christ died for you. But the second half, therefore all died. And this I think we would just skip over normally. We would read it and we would say, yeah, I understand that, sort of. Just let's move on. I, I get the part that Christ died for us, but what about, would we ever speak as if we died with Christ? Do we speak that way very often? Do we know what that really means? 
Well, I recently watched the movie Much Ado About Nothing with my fiance, Sarah. She's the one who introduced me. <laughs> Ike's got me. She's the one who introduced me to the fun side of Shakespeare. So this is a great movie. It's much better, I'm sure, to see it played out than it is to read it. But the old English is, is a little bit difficult. But I'm going to ruin it for you guys today. If you haven't seen it, you had 400 years since Shakespeare. I don't feel too bad. But I'm going to ruin it for a purpose. So the story goes, and there's a character named Hero. And it's actually a woman named Hero who is the main um, woman in the story, give or take. So what happens with Hero is that she's going to be married, right? And she's going to be married in a couple days to a nice, handsome young man. And the handsome young man is walking down at nighttime, and he looks up at the tower, and he sees what he thinks is her room. But then he realizes he sees someone making love to another man in that room. So he's looking up and he's thinking, oh my gosh, that's my fiance. He's furious. The next day goes by and he goes to the wedding. Well, he goes to the wedding and he's so mad and embarrassed that he just leaves her at the wedding. He won't marry her and he embarrasses her in front of all of her friends and she's left crying on the floor. This is like the drama of a telenovela, right? But this is actually the story. And we hear that she's so distraught from all of this uh, suffering and from all this embarrassment that she literally died. So this is an incredible turn of events. And he, at this point, the, the man doesn't feel too bad. He's like, Hero cheated on me, right? This is totally fine. I'm not the one in the wrong. But then he realizes and he learns later that he was in the wrong. That wasn't her in the tower. That was somebody else. And he mistook her um, to be his fiance. So now he's totally distraught too. And he's like, oh my gosh, I loved this woman. Now I've killed her. What am I going to do? And it turns out that at the end of the movie, she comes back. She wasn't dead. And there's a very famous line by her. And what she says when he asks her, how are you alive? She says, one hero died defiled, but I do live. And I think this is what Paul's trying to get across to us right? Hero died defiled, or the defiled hero died. She was embarrassed, and everything, all these accusations were on her. She was defiled, but that hero died, and now a new hero lives. And we should be able to say this as Christians, right? If everyone can, go to the next slide, yeah, if everyone can say this with me and just insert their name, because this is what we should be able to say as Christians, right? One Drew died defiled, but I do live. Right? Let's say it. Come on, say it with me. One Drew died defiled, but I do live. So now, we are living, but what are we living for? Well, he goes on in verse 15, And Jesus died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. See, the old defiled me has died with Christ. And the new me lives. That old me lived for myself, but the new me should live for Jesus. But maybe some of you aren't convinced. You say, oh, Drew, I, I know the metaphor that you're talking about. I get it. But Jesus literally died. Like, this is just a metaphor, and it's all spiritual. It doesn't really matter too much. It's just kind of a literary thing that Paul's doing. Well, I would say, well, maybe you're mistaken about which is more important, right? Maybe you're placing too much weight on the physical, on the flesh, and not enough on the spirit. Because that's what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about spiritual death and spiritual life. And that's the most important thing. See, Paul wasn't speaking about your flesh. 
he says in verses 16 and 17, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. Did you catch what he's saying, right? Paul used to regard people from this worldly point of view, but he doesn't do that anymore. I mean, he even regarded Christ in this way. And we might look at that and say, how can you possibly regard Jesus Christ? Oh my gosh, he's the best in this way, but maybe we do the same thing. Maybe we look at very wealthy people and we say, look at those clothes that they have, look at the car that they have. That's a good person right there. I want to be like him. Or maybe we see a poor person on the street and you kind of shield your kids. You're like, eh, don't, don't talk to them. They're, they're bad. Stay away from them. And maybe you think about Jesus Christ and you think, how can an ancient guy in some toga kind of robe, how can he know anything about what it's like for me today in a modern world? For his conversion, that's how Paul was, right? He regarded people in this way. He regarded them according to their worldly selves, and he himself had a lot to boast of in that regard, right? He was a Hebrew of a Hebrews. He was so educated, he probably looked down on anyone that he saw as immoral. He looked down on anyone that he thought was sinful. And maybe we do that. Maybe we have an issue with seeing people in their worldly selves and not looking at them through the lens of the cross. But if you see people, like maybe Christians, right? You might look at them and say, oh, they're from a rough background. Yeah, they're Christian, but they really need to clean up their act if they're, if they're going to hang out with me. Maybe you see someone and you're like, oh, well, they don't look a lot like me. They're not really my people. I mean, they can be Christians, all right, but I don't want us to look at people that way. And Paul doesn't want us to look at people that way. He's calling us to a different way, a spiritual way. He's challenging us to think about people through this lens of the cross. And it's everyone, right? Regard no one from a worldly point of view. He's not just saying a couple people, well, look at Christ in a good way, but you can look at everyone else in a worldly way, right? That's not what he's saying. He's saying that every single person you interact with in your life is to be viewed from the spiritual, biblical point of view. At Westminster, I took a class on evangelism and missions, and we kind of addressed this problem from a missions perspective, because it's very common for prospective missionaries to come to a country and to be like, oh, I know so much about the religion here, I know so much about the culture here, and then they go and they treat each person that they interact with from that point of view, as if every single person is a cookie-cutter image of what their supposed doctrine is, right? And this is a problem. This is a problem for a couple of reasons. One is, people aren't perfect followers of their supposed religions, right? You go to um, an Islamic country, they're going to be people that don't really care about Islam, right? They're just trying to get money or they're trying to do something else. They're individuals, right, with their own ideas and their own interpretations of things. And we need to look at people from this biblical point of view in order to know how to best treat them. And even as a missionary, right, how to best uh, evangelize. You can't evangelize an individual the same you would another individual. Well, I think it's also important because today in America, it's common for us to identify ourselves, right? Maybe we get uh, tempted into this kind of thinking because everyone's like, oh, I, I can tell you who I am. I can make up in my mind whoever I want to be, and then I'm going to identify that way. But Paul doesn't leave that to us to decide. He doesn't allow us that freedom of self-identification. He says, if you are in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, 
the new is here. It doesn't matter if you identify with the old, that's gone, the new is here. What you are is identified by God. He's the one who identifies you. God says the truth about you and about everybody else. So what we want to do here is, I just want to give you three quick things that you can remember while you're dealing with people. And this is true about every single person you encounter. The first one is that everyone is made in the image of God. So God made every single person with a purpose to reflect himself in the world. It doesn't matter if they're rich, if they're poor, tall, or short. Every single person has dignity bestowed upon them by God. The second one, everyone's life is impacted by sin. There's no neutral people. There's nobody that, oh yeah, well I didn't hear about the gospel yet, therefore I'm not affected by this God that you speak of. No. Every single person is impacted by sin in this world. And they all must die and be reborn in order to live a life free from the power of sin. The third one is that anyone can be reconciled to God. Anyone can be reconciled to God. Whether you're under God's wrath because you haven't accepted Jesus, or you are a Christian and you're in Christ, the way is through the cross. And anyone can come on this path. It is open to everyone in the world. So Paul exhorts us, right, be reconciled through Jesus. And if you can keep these three things in your mind when you're interacting with people, it'll help. It'll help because we tend, and Paul knows this, right, we tend to look at people from this worldly perspective, but this is the biblical perspective. This is the way in which the Bible describes people. And so it's important for us to treat people accordingly, right? Let's treat them how God sees them. Well, if we take a look at verses 18 and 19, it says, God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. And now we're really talking about the power of the cross, right? To be reconciled with God, human beings were wrecked by sin, and it wasn't just Adam and Eve's fault, though they played a big part. We've also joined in on it, right? We've joined in and we've sinned alongside them. So what's going to happen to these sinful humans, right? What's going to happen? Well, we see that God is taking an active role in our reconciliation. He doesn't just let us be. No, he reconciled us to himself through Christ. We aren't left on our own. We have a Savior that loves and he pursues us. As the worship song goes, how great is our God, right? How great is our God? And that's the beauty of the cross here. He's pursuing us. He's reconciling us. Did I say there was a tragedy before? Of course it is, but what a beautiful tragedy, right? What a beautiful tragedy that brings us into the arms of this loving God who would do anything for us. What a wise and loving God. How perfect is his holiness and his justice. He didn't count sin's punishments to us. He took it onto himself. And some people think this is grotesque. Some people think this is not the way that it should have happened. I remember I um, was in an HR meeting at my company, and there was a woman who was very concerned. She came and she asked, oh, you know, I've, I've had this experience in the past where I would walk in and my boss had a painting of the crucifixion. And I'm sure that it was a little bloodier than she would have liked. Um, she maybe was offended by this Jesus. And she asked my HR rep, she said, what would you do if you were in this situation? Would we be able to get him to take it down? Because every time I walk into that office, I don't wanna see that, right? The world is offended by this kind of thing. Now, unfortunately, the HR rep sort of took her side on that. 
Um, and she said, yeah, we would make sure we take care of this and all that. But the world doesn't like this Jesus. They think maybe, maybe there's some other way. Maybe Jesus didn't have to die, and maybe this guy that we're speaking of is really just cruel, and he doesn't need to kill Jesus. He could have just forgiven people and just said, oh, it's okay, you've, you've sinned against me, but now I'll, I'll just let it go. But that's not better. That's not better because sin is serious. If sin wasn't a big deal, then yeah, sure. But sin is a big deal, and people know that, right? There's serious, sinful people that go out and they murder, and it's like, how do we deal with this? We don't want a God who doesn't punish those people, right? It's not a joke. But what a great God who wants to heal the sinner and not just punish. Because there's the other extreme where they say, oh, I understand why people need to get punished, but let's just punish everyone who's evil and we'll reward the good people. That's another objection you might hear to the cross, right? Let's just punish all the bad people and reward all the good. Sounds so easy, sounds so, so you know, oh, why didn't God think of this? But he did think of this. And actually, if you've ever heard the story of Noah's Ark, you know that the flood killed off the whole world. God did punish sin in this way, and he didn't like it. The only people that made it through were just the chosen few of Noah and his family, you know? He would have to destroy everyone if he were going to do it this way. And that doesn't leave people reconciled with God. All that does is punish evil people, but that's everyone, right? And usually the people arguing this way are like, oh, well, that doesn't apply to me, you know? Punish all those evil people, but I'm one of the good ones, you know? That's usually the way they think. But that doesn't work, and God doesn't want that. And it's such a good thing that God doesn't want that kind of justice. Now, through, the Christ, through Christ on the cross, we have been reconciled to God. There is no other way. There is no other way, and that's perfect. We don't need anything else. We don't want anything else. The cross is just right. Nothing more, nothing less. The cross is just right. Now, Paul, as an apostle, implores us on Christ's behalf in verse 20, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. Now, he's talking to us to be reconciled, but I thought that God was the one reconciling us, right? I've been talking about this the whole time. God is the one pursuing us. So is there a piece of this puzzle that we have to do? Is there something that we need to do? And I just want to answer that simply. Yes, there is. But that portion of reconciliation, all that is is to believe the gospel, to believe in Jesus. That's what's our responsibility, right? God did all the hard stuff of living that perfect life, suffering for sin and calling people to himself. Now all he does is he calls us to believe. It's simple. But let me be clear that there is no reconciliation apart from believing this cross. There is no reconciliation apart from it. So many people, they want the benefits. They see all the good things of reconciliation and they say, oh, I want that peace. I want that joy. I want that love. And they call for it. You might see politicians doing this all the time, but those are just empty words. They sound really nice. Yes, joy, love, peace, I'll take it. But they have no power to uphold the kind of reconciliation that they call for. The cross is the power. That's it. There is no other way. That's why Paul would say so many times that he comes in the power of the Spirit, not with just empty words and fancy speaking, right? The power is in the cross. So finally, we take a look at verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this might be the craziest verse of the whole passage. Nothing like saving the best for last. Well, God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us. It's important to note that Jesus never sinned a day in his life. 
There was no sin in Jesus. He was this perfect man, perfect God. Yet God made him to be sin for us. Does that mean that Jesus took sin into himself? No. Does it mean that Jesus somehow metamorphosized into sin? No. All it means, and this is very easy to tell when you read the context, right? All it means is that Jesus took the full brunt of sin and its consequences. He took the end of sin, which is always death. The end of sin is always death, but he took all of that onto himself, and it couldn't hold him, right? He was stronger. He conquered. He was completely swallowed up, but he came out on the other side. He managed the fullness of sin, and he conquered it in glory. God satisfied his entire punishment for the sins of his people onto Jesus, all for the purpose of reconciling us to himself. So once sin was dealt with, our defiled selves were dead and gone. God was free to work a new creation in us. The covenant sacrifice of Jesus on the cross has been made so that we could be made anew. New creations, able to become this righteousness of God, able to fellowship with the perfect and holy Lord of the universe. See, God imputed Christ's righteousness to us, and we are not only forgiven our sins, but also given Christ's righteousness. An incredible work and an amazing plan by the Father who is in heaven. So I just want to end looking at this from another perspective. Because we've talked a lot about God the Father planning this beautiful plan, right? This amazing tragedy that really is what power um, to reconcile us. And that's true. All of that is true. But we just heard this great song, right? Crucifixion. And it sort of explores what Jesus' thoughts might have been. Because not only is this God the Father planning this, but Jesus the Son is doing it, right? And he's following this plan. I love the lyrics, you drew up the plan, long before the world began, and it's closer now than ever, and I've never felt this way until, you know? Christ is wrestling with this, and he's going through with the Father's plan. It's a triune God kind of event, right? It's not just one person, but Jesus is also involved in the cross. And so it's this act that is completely a unified and cooperative thing, where the triune God is working with himself, right, to achieve salvation for all who believe. God the Father planned this crucifixion. Jesus submitted to the crucifixion, and now the Spirit changes people's hearts who hear and believe the story. It's such an elegant event which epitomizes the character of God and his heart for his people. I'll never be offended by the cross. The cross is bloody and it's tragic. It's also beautiful and it's glorious. It's God's redemption plan in action. So let's just say I hope that you leave tonight in a serious and yet joyful mood. Christ died, but he died with a purpose. He was tortured, but he set mankind free. He's embarrassed and humiliated in public, but all to be further glorified in front of every human in the world. Tonight, be reconciled to God through this cross, the tragic, beautiful cross. Let us pray. Lord Almighty, you are holy and just, wise and good. Merciful and loving, you are unlike us because of your perfection. We pray that you would enlighten our minds to see how the cross is the absolute best way to reconcile us to you. Help us to glory in the cross and to humble ourselves before Jesus, who first humbled himself before us. He came as a servant, though he himself was God. Glorify him and hold us fast. In your name we pray. Amen.